Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. St. Luke records two major questions and leaves us with one mystery at the end of the Gospel text concerning a certain man who encounters Jesus in today's Gospel. Now, the questions that are asked are very familiar ones to us, and this is true even even if we don't necessarily have these types of questions that come up in our own conversations, they are at least the ones that kind of lurk within our own soul, lurk within our own hearts and minds. And the certain man who comes before Jesus is a lawyer, and he stands up before Jesus, and he does this to put him to the test. And he asks this question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a, certainly a question that uh, is one that can be on our minds, can come up in conversation. This lawyer asks the question out loud, but he asks it to put Jesus to the test. There is then something to be very clear about from the moment we witness this exchange between the lawyer and Jesus with this particular question. In fact, St. Luke records the insincerity in which this question is asked, how this certain lawyer stood up, and he stood up for the intended purpose to put Jesus to the test. And so it is that the entire foundation, the entire foundation for his question is compromised because it lacks the integrity of actually hearing an answer. He really doesn't care. He doesn't care to hear what Jesus says concerning the inheritance of eternal life. It's as good as his. He's certain in this fact. He simply asks the question that he may catch Jesus, that he may test Jesus. Now, it's good to be a model student, so don't get me wrong, especially in our context here. But doesn't this lawyer kind of sound like an arrogant, straight-A student? The type of student who would, who would raise his hand? Um, sir, yes, sir. I, I was wondering, what should I do to earn an A in this class? If you, if you heard a student like that, not just any student, if you, if you heard a student like that who passes all his classes and is the top of his class, you may, may wonder, what is this guy's angle? And then you may come to the conclusion, I bet, yeah, I bet he's just trying to show the teacher he'll do whatever it takes to get that A. Maybe he thinks that he, in fact, already deserves the A. And he's just letting the teacher know, just letting him know what he deserves. It's this little passive, aggressive test, isn't it? It's subtle, in a way. And maybe only the keen pick up on it. Maybe he's, he's just testing Jesus' ability to, to see greatness, right? He's, he's this arrogant about himself. The lawyer thinks himself pretty great. 
maybe Jesus could be the Messiah. In fact, that is, if he recognizes the lawyer's worthiness for the inheritance of eternal life. Now, that's a troubled person, isn't it? To live under the assumption that an inheritance belongs to you before it's even ever given. The very foundation of an inherited thing is that it once was not yours. It once was not yours, but then it is given to you. And we are troubled lawyers, yes, all of us, if we argue that eternal life is our inheritance before the great sin that rages within all of us, if we claim the inheritance to eternal life but have not recognized, have not confessed that we first have a great and horrible inheritance of sin, that what rages within us is an original sin, an inheritance of the fall, then we are blind fools and troubled people ourselves. We are truly troubled if we are blind to the inheritance of damnation and see our sinful selves as only worthy of a sinless eternity. Yes, with God there is mercy. But left to our own conclusions, we would find that we do not need it. And that's the lawyer's problem. And it's our problem if we would be so unwise that we would not see our first inheritance of sin and its need of undoing. This is what is actually at the very core. The problem with the lawyer putting Jesus to the test. He does not first see his sin before God. Jesus is masterful in his response. He says to the lawyer, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Gives him an opportunity. And the lawyer responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus turns to this proud pupil with this sort of pop quiz. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Come on now, you must know. What's the answer? It's really no riddle. God himself is a fine teacher. You must know. And oh, oh, does he know the answer? He truly is the top of his class. Love. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. By all rubrics, this fine student deserves high marks. Give that man a gold star. Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Do this, and you will live. That strikes this man in a peculiar way and leads him to have the second follow-up question. And who is my neighbor? 
Jesus, being the good teacher, affirms his newest whiz kid. Good job. You have answered correctly. Oh, but there's just one more thing. And this is what truly makes Jesus the good teacher. What makes Jesus a uniquely perceptual instructor. What displays Jesus as the Son of God that he knows this man's heart. He knows his heart. Oh, but there's just one thing. Do this and you will live. Do this love thing. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. (laughs) If he does that, if he does that perfectly, the inheritance of eternal life is as good as his. But this ensnarement that Jesus leads him into in order to mirror his sin before him shows an entanglement that begins within the own, his own being, within the, within the being of this, this lawyer. It reveals to us to hear the evidence that the law of God is working on this man's heart and heart. In fact, his thinking becomes a blundering mess. What Jesus tells him sticks with him. Do this and you will live. His mortal mind is sorting out the cosmic cause and effect of his ability to love God and neighbor such in a way that it begins to weigh upon him. The star student wants to be clear about the course objectives. Who is my neighbor? It is a loaded question, for sure. The assumption of the lawyer is that he has already loved God perfectly. He blows past God because for some reason he believes that he can get his head wrapped around who God is. And he seemingly believes that he's done a fine job of loving him. But his neighbor, his neighbor is a bit of a mystery. Who's that guy? Is my neighbor only other believers? Do I only love them? Is my neighbor only those who like me and I like them? The question of who is my neighbor very easily leads into how many are my neighbor? And must I love all these people as my neighbor? St. Luke gives us this second big insight into the heart of this man. Just as the first question is an insincere testing of Jesus, so now the question of who is my neighbor is this man's desperate attempt to justify himself. The star student who approached Jesus with all the answers is now fishing for the bare minimum. Not the type of student you really want. He wants to claim those he's loved already as neighbors so that he may already 
pre-qualified for the inheritance of eternal life. But there are more to be loved. A world of people to love as our neighbor. And more than this, if we do not love the least of God's people, can we truly say that we've loved God perfectly? Jesus is leading him to the coming parable to guide him to realize, to see his need for repentance. Jesus gives him and for our ears this parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place, saw him and passed on the other side. So two passed by. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. But he did not pass by. When he saw him, he had compassion upon him. He went to him. He bound up his wounds. He poured on oil. He put on wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And even the next day, he took out of his own pocket two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and told him, directed him, you take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay. This pericope always makes me think of the theme song from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. The lawyer and Mr. Rogers ask two very different questions. Who is my neighbor, the lawyer, versus won't you be my neighbor, Mr. Rogers. The rigidity of the lawyer is a glaring contrast to the Mr. Roger-like Samaritan. The lawyer is busy drafting a personhood blueprint while the Samaritan has already assumed the neighborly need of the naked and robbed man who's lying half dead on the side of the road. Only the Samaritan is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And what about the man himself, the neighbor, the neighbor in need? His tragic biography is telling also. At one moment, he's on a journey. And the next moment, he's robbed, stripped, beat for no reason, and left to die while the priest and the Levite wag their heads and leave him to save himself. There they left him as if they esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In the commandments, there is an intrinsic call to love God and neighbor. The tables of the law contain 
both our loving obligation to God and all people. Yet, when we begin to ask, what is our obligation? We've already failed. We have walked past God's clear word, seeking another to justify ourselves. That is a tragic reality. That when we avoid helping and supporting our neighbor's physical need for mercy, it is as though we have stripped him of his personhood and murderously abandoned him for dead. God holds us to the highest standard of fearing and loving him. So that for the rest of our lives, what would flow from us would be an honor for all people. That everyone may become to us our greater and we their servant to serve and obey, love and cherish, no matter the cost. For embodied in the Samaritan is Christ who comes to save and rescue. And embodied in the man dying, stripped, beaten and robbed is Christ who gives it all, who goes to the cross and isn't half dead, but dies, who is crucified for our salvation, your salvation. Jesus asks this man who proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers the one who showed him mercy. Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. Reminiscent of the do this and you will live. Love God and neighbor. This final exchange is perhaps the most mysterious. St. Luke records that the lawyer again answers correctly, but to what end? We may ask, to what end? Does the lawyer leave angry, bitter with Jesus? Is he sad because he doesn't quite get it? Or does he leave enlightened? Does he see that before him is the Christ, who is the Samaritan along his way? who has come to preach a word of repentance and faith that he may live, that he may then reflect upon this same Christ who goes to the cross and is crucified and then risen for his salvation, who does this that we may live, who truly loves God and neighbor. We don't know. We don't know what is the end to this exchange between the lawyer who initially, at least, stood up to put Jesus to the test. What we do know, from the lips of Jesus himself, is that mercy is the kind of love we are to give to our neighbor. And our neighbor is clearly all people. All people must be shown the mercy of God through us. As God has been merciful to you, forgiving you the inheritance of sin and every sin since the fall of man, 
and has blessed you with an inheritance of eternal life through the absolute love of Jesus, so will your love for others overflow. As God's grace overflows your cup, know that this overflowing of grace is not wasted grace, but useful to fill up your neighbor's cup with the love of Christ for them. Let it then finally be clear what the true physical needs of the body are beyond clothing, shelter, and food. It's also the soul. Our body's physical demands come from the very creator who made us. So that we may say that our physical needs are by extension also a need for the body to avoid sin and damnation in the very flames of hell. Our bodies are redeemed by Christ's death and resurrection. So what they need after being convicted of sin, brought to repentance, is the merciful word of the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit, to grant us faith to believe in Jesus. That with our bodies we may hear with our ears salvation and taste with our lips Christ's true body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. To walk with our legs in righteous directions as once justified by Christ. To love God with hands that pray and love our neighbors with hands that give, embrace, and open the scriptures to lead all who we encounter with the love of Jesus. Jesus tells the man, you go and do likewise. How can he say this? He says this as the one who has already done it for him and for you and for me. For him, for you, and for me has Jesus already been merciful. He has given himself for our greatest needs of body and soul. So we do not love our neighbor to earn eternal life. Rather, it is because we have a rich inheritance of eternal life that we go and likewise love our neighbor as God intended us to do. And this is beautiful good news. This word of Christ is both for us a seal of God's merciful love and a call to give what has freely been given to you. Not to earn our righteousness, but that the world may see who has brought us from repentance and into faith. Who has loved us? Who has forsaken the world with his cross? Who has put upon us salvation? That we may then go into the world and tell them about the one who has been merciful. So go. Go in the forgiveness of Christ Go in the mercy of Christ. Amen.